Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Lace up your hiking boots and pick a bunk because your stay at Camp Crystal Lake is just beginning. That's right. I am here to talk about In Voorhees We Trust with Gorley and Rust. These are two guys I adore, Matt Gorley, Paul Rust. They love the Friday the 13th franchise a ton. I actually talked to Paul about it when I did my own Halloween podcast. And you can hear them now tackle all 12 films of the Voorhees family legacy. I won't even just say family dynasty. This is a dynasty of 12 dynamic, very bloody films. And now, to celebrate the fact that they have finished In Voorhees We Trust, it was previously available only on Stitcher Premium, but it is on Earwolf for free right now. You can listen to the first episode of In Voorhees We Trust, and they will keep coming back and back and back and back and back and back every week, just like evil sequels. However, if you want to skip ahead, you can binge the whole series right now on Stitcher Premium. In fact, if you want to get a free month, just go to stitcherpremium.com slash Voorhees. Voorhees, by the way, is spelled V-O-O-R-H-E-E-S. Use that promo code Voorhees and you will get your full free month of Stitcher Premium. So join Matt and Paul on their journey to Crystal Lake, Manhattan, hell, outer space, beyond, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by our homies at Cavo. The Control Center by Cavo, it simplifies your home theater so that you can control everything connected to your TV with one powerful, easy, voice-controlled remote that listens to you in a way that you really wish your mom had. So just say the name of whatever you want to watch, and Control Center will take you straight there. This week, you might want to say City Lights, and Control Center will be like, I respect that you used your mouth, even though Charlie Chaplin did, and I will take you to watch City Lights. So if you want to get 40% off your Control Center right now, if you want to just revolutionize your home, clean it up, keep it tidy, Use the promo code UNSPOOLED and you will get 40% off your regular pricing of $9.95. That is just $59.95 for the simplest remote that makes your life feel so much more manageable. Control Center is available at Cavo.com, that is C-A-A-V-O.com, and Best Buy. Control Center by Cavo, one remote that does it all. The year is 1931, and a tramp is rebelling against sound. The movie, City Lights.
Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson and Paul Shear is in New York for a millisecond. So it is just me right now introducing the show and talking about last week's episode on A West Side Story. And Paul and I did have our sanity questioned by that Casey Ryan who said, Listening to Unspooled on West Side Story, I'm concerned about Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson thinking Maria would be dating again two to three months after her boyfriend is shot and killed while in her arms. It wasn't a breakup. It was murder. Are you guys okay? To which the question is, I'm not sure we ever were okay. But that is a fair point. Shot and killed in her arms. That does seem like it might take a minute. I wonder, though, how long until it's just this weird story that Maria tells people on, like, their third date. You know, she's like, guys, I have to tell you, I had this really weird kind of breakup murder, definite murder once. I think Maria will be fine. She'll be as fine as she ever was. But yes, yes, we are probably not okay. You are correct. Andy Horowitz at A-M-H-I-N-L-A says... Don't dismiss Oklahoma so quickly. It is very politically relevant. Go see Daniel Fish's new version when it opens on Broadway this spring. Okay, I will. I like to go to New York once a year to catch up on theater. I will go see Oklahoma because I I think it's kind of screwed up that I haven't seen Oklahoma. And it is time to really represent my state because really like, or my my semi-state, because we're represented only really in far and away in that land rush scene at the very end where everybody's cheating and Tom Cruise rides up and he and Nicole Kidman get back together and... Oklahoma does deserve more than all of this. Oh, we also have Near Dark by Catherine Bigelow. That's about it. Oh, and Twister. I can't forget Twister. We also have Twister. And here is a great mention from the morally corrupt Joel Kahn at Joel Stuffs. He says, My dad always pointed out that the Simpsons theme song, when they sing The Simpsons, is the same three notes as Maria. West Side Story is deeply ingrained in that show. And oh my God, I need to hear that right now. Maria, I just kissed a girl named Maria. Okay, your dad is a genius. Thank you, Mr. Khan. So it is time to get into this week's episode on City Lights. And what we asked you guys last week is if you don't know what City Lights is, call in and give us your best idea of what City Lights is about. Let's take a listen to some of those calls. I think that City Lights is about a young aspiring, bright-eyed architect. Yeah, I'm pretty sure City Lights is a precursor to Bright Lights Big City that features Charlie Chaplin strung out on Lovnam, riding around town in a trolley car. A lovable tramp, and he lives at the bottom of the city, and there's a goyle, and she, you know, the, the, the glitz and the glamour of the city don't matter because they got their love, you know. Charlie Chaplin plays a homeless man who needs money for his uh, wife's operation. Uh, And so he takes on a series of jobs, all of which he fails at. And finally, he takes on the disguise of a rich person and infiltrates uh, high society. I think city life is about a city boy born and raised in South Detroit who took a midnight train going anywhere. Well, I'm always here for a journey shout out. And that is actually not too far from what Paul was sort of predicting, that maybe City Lights was like a a city mouse kind of story. Fair enough. Journey does not write enough songs about mice. But let's talk about City Lights. Let's go. 
Amy, it's 1931, and the deadliest natural disaster in history happens. It's called the China Floods. They are estimated to have killed as many as 4 million people. The influential songs of the time include Mood Indigo by Duke Ellington and I Got Rhythm by Ethel Waters. Thomas Edison's last breath was held in a test tube at the Henry Ford Museum. A dozen bananas was only 25 cents. Ruth Wakefield created the chocolate chip, and the first chocolate chip cookie was invented, but it was called a Toll House cookie. Alexander Calder was credited with creating the first artistic mobile, uh, a.k.a. the kinetic sculpture. Um, And the big movie of the year was Frankenstein, followed by this film, City Lights, which is rated number 11 on the 2007 AFI list, taking a massive 65-spot jump from the 1997 list. Amy... City Lights, who's in it? What's it about? (laughs) Well, first, can I just say, it's 2019, and Paul's fun facts are getting weirder and weirder. (laughs) (laughs) You got to go deep. I know. That was a real real trip in so many different ways. (laughs) City Lights is written and directed by Charlie Chaplin. It stars himself as the tramp. It stars Virginia Sherrill as the blind girl who he falls in love with. She sells violets on the street. You've got silent film actress Florence Lee as the grandmother, Harry Myers as an eccentric millionaire. Alan Garcia as his butler. And what happens is basically that the tramp falls in love with a girl who can't see, believes that he's rich. He befriends another rich man, uses the rich man's car to put on a slight air so he's a little bit wealthy. And then he helps the girl get her sight back in a way that A, gets him beaten up, B, puts him in prison. And when he gets out, the girl has undergone a surgery that lets her see again for the first time, maybe for the first time. See, she can see, whatever it is. She can see him for the first time. And they look at each other, and you think, is she going to date this tramp? And she does! Does score. she? I think she does. Does she? At least I, for a couple weeks. I think it's like a graduate ending. It's an ending that looks like a happy ending, and maybe it's not a happy ending. Maybe this is a Rorschach test, and maybe on this Rorschach test, I am the cynic, and you are the man who believes in love. Well, I think that was one of the things I was struck by with the film, is how complex it was. I mean, it was a silent film, and I think what I've been used to in my kind of exposure to silent film, is that they're very simple, very basic. It's A to B. And this, I think, film represents this moment where talkies are coming in and stories are being told differently, but yet Chaplin doesn't do a talkie, but yet he makes a talkie film silently, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you're right that this is happening in this era where we switch over to the modern world. I mean, 31. Yeah. We've had talkies since 1927. And by 31, four years, they're just like, boom, everything is a talkie. We are not making silent films. These are not cool. These are lame. These are the, these are the I don't know, the 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 porkies of 2019. Porkies. We don't make a porkies. Who's making a porkies? I'm sure someone's making a porkies right now. <laughs> There's somebody developing porkies. Like, we got to bring it for the kids. Yeah. Porkies. It'd be really good. It's a real, real good message. The porkiverse. The- you want the porkiverse back? <laughs> well, that is the thing. Times change. But Charlie Chaplin did not want to change, or he changed a little bit in ways I think are really interesting, because it's almost like Charlie Chaplin to me is the inverse of, say, who do we got? We got a James Cameron. We got Peter Jackson. The guys who are like, we're really important directors. Everybody wants to see what we do, and we're going to use that power to push the medium forward. We're going to be like, high frame rate, motherfuckers. But he's going backwards but yet advancing storytelling, or I feel like is making a film that's contemporary. And I... 
I kind of see it more as being stubborn. Like when I think about Cameron or, you know, Peter Jackson, they're going, no, 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 this is the future. Where Charlie Chaplin literally was like, talkies are a fad. And, and literally in the middle of making this film, he took a break to be like, huh, I guess talkies are going to stay. How do I make this film better? He really was fighting against it. He was not with the times. Exactly. But it takes a certain type of megalomaniac to mm-hmm. pull it off. And maybe that's where they intersect. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, everything that I've read about Chaplin on this film is similar to the way Buster Keaton was. It was like, no, no, no. This movie is going to push it to the next level. I mean, it was $1.5 million dollars. In 1931, to make this movie, like the sets that they are on were built. Like that, that was not, I was blown away by that. I thought that was shot in like real streets. I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, he spent years making this film. This is like a giant passion project and he could do it because he wasn't working for a studio. He was working for himself-ish, part of like the United Artists umbrella with like him and Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. But yeah, like you have to see City Lights through the framing of This is a silent movie that comes out in the talkie era, and it is commenting on that constantly to the point that there's a scene here where characters talk and you just have Charlie Chaplin making fun of the sound of talking as though to say, who needs this? Here, let's let's take a listen. This is when a bunch of fatuous people at the beginning of the film reveal a statue and give a bunch of speeches and Chaplin is saying, speeches are meaningless. You don't need to hear people talk. I mean, and first of all, a couple of notable things. That's, I think, the only time that Charlie Chaplin's voice has technically been on film because that was Charlie Chaplin playing the kazoo. So that's his voice in some version. But I couldn't help that when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, that is Peanuts. That's Snoopy. Oh, whoa. Because I thought that is Mars Attacks. From Just Mars as Attacks. classic. Just as classic, <laughs> where it's another person going up to a podium giving a speech that sounds like this. So, you cannot tell me that Tim Burton did not watch City Lights. Uh, you know what? I buy it because, you know what? Tim Burton definitely, I'm sure, was influenced by this film. And this film is a film that has influenced so many people. I mean, this is like said to be Orson Welles' favorite film, Stanley Kubrick's favorite film, even my favorite the director of Beverly Hills Cop, Martin Brest, said this is one of his wow. favorite films. We went almost a month without you bringing up Beverly Hills Cop. I know. And you know what? You still haven't watched it to have an opinion <laughs> on whether In the Heat of the Night is basically just uh, setting the tone for Beverly Hills Cop. Well, it's Charlie Chaplin's favorite Charlie Chaplin film. Yeah. And you can tell it's a very mature film. But can I make an admission to you? Okay, go ahead. I like this film a lot. But I don't know if I like silent films. I think I get bored watching silent films. I, I just find myself enjoying the set pieces, like, you know, the fight or, you know, the picking up manure or, you know, buying the flower. And watching the whole film, I just kind of am constantly checking out of it. I don't know why. That's so interesting because I feel like silent films, you can't really look away and just trust that the talking will like let you know what's mm-hmm. happening. You have to watch it. You have to stare at it. And you, to me, it makes it almost more engaging. We have to find the silent film that you like. I wonder if it's going to be Sunrise. 
We were going to get to it someday. I keep talking it up. I'm really excited for you to see Sunrise because there's a drunken pig. And I feel like maybe the drunken pig is the secret. Maybe it's about seeing it in a theater. Maybe it's about being, you know, so present in the moment. I really, really love this film. And I don't want to say anything derogatory about it. I just was thinking about it more in the general sense. Like, I think if there is a silent film to beat, this has to be it. I mean, the set pieces, like I was saying, like the the scene at the the club when it's like dancing and fighting and eating pasta, it it's so wonderfully choreographed and laid out. And and again, talking about like West Side Story and how there's a many amazing dancers, like there's so much choreography within this film of the other actors. You know, it, it didn't remind me of Buster Keaton. I think Buster Keaton felt again like watch me do my thing where Charlie Chaplin makes a film where everyone's in the same world. And I was reading like interviews with the kid who played the paper boy. And he said, you know, Charlie Chaplin would act out every single part. He would literally be like, you would take the, you know, spitball, you'd shoot it like this. And then he would run over to where the tramp would be. And he'd act out what the tramp would do. And he'd run back to the paper boy. Like he'd act out the scenes for everyone. So everyone was essentially doing an impression of Charlie Chaplin. Like that's kind of how he directed the film. Yeah, his films are sort of like machinery. Maybe I'm just thinking that about that because we're also going to get to Modern Times. It's just like right. the machinery movie where he goes inside the gears. But you sense him winding up this whole toy box and then just being like, ta-da! And yeah. running into it and just making chaos and being fantastic. I mean, I really love this movie. What really caught me, not by surprise, I guess, but whatever, by surprise, I laughed so much in this film. Really? I was just cracking up the whole time. And and I kept being like surprised by like how much I was laughing. Because maybe it's not a silent film and you're the one doing the laughing. But he is just so good. And it's weird because I want to consider myself a Buster Keaton girl. I don't know why. I don't right. know why. I have no idea why contrarian. I want to be Buster Keaton. The contrarian girl. in you wants to Probably say that. Buster Keaton's Probably better that. than Charlie Chaplin. Probably that. And because I like the element of death that happens in a Buster Keaton film. <laughs> well, no, and Buster because Charlie Keaton- Chaplin was like a shithead with women. I hear that. But I don't think you can deny that Charlie Chaplin is creating this iconic character. I mean, you feel for this character. The end works because of the way he plays it. Like, he's an amazing actor. And I don't think he's just playing a straight man. And I feel like Buster Keaton is playing a straight man. And the performance of Charlie Chaplin as this character is just so much um, richer and fuller. Yeah, like there's this really delicate balance in his type of comedy that I love so much. You know, you see him at the beginning of this film. He's so poor that his pants are ripped open in the back. Like the finger falls off of his gloves. He is broke. And yet it's not like violins and oh, little right. sad broke clown. Because then he goes and he's ogling this hot lady statue. But pretending he's not ogling Which the hot lady statue. Which is such statue. a funny bit. Like just to be ogling a statue. Like he's kind of like stealing a glance at a <laughs> statue. Exactly. And then during that whole scene where he's staring at this hot lady statue. You know, the comedy bit is like he keeps walking back to take a more appraising look and then mm-hmm. walking forward. And every time he walks forward, the sewer grate kind of elevator thing lowers beneath him in the sidewalk. And he just narrowly misses falling every time, you know? And there's a type of comedy where the joke is that he, like, walks back and falls into the hole. But that's right. not a Chaplin comedy. Like, in a Chaplin comedy, he doesn't fall into the hole. He just gets, like, angry and perturbed when he realizes he could have fallen into the hole. And then he yells at a man and then, right. like, realizes that man could beat him up. There's that He's playing with dignity and well, not he, Pratt falls. He's a low-status character who has, like, high-status uh, opinions of himself. So I thought that was really interesting, too. This movie 
wasn't like, oh my God, I can't believe, how did he do that? It's just sort of, no, no, he's, he's a mime. He's, he's reacting to the world as kind of bouncing off of his body. Yeah, and it's fascinating because as he's being a mime, you know, he does have the gift of being able to use titles on the screen whenever right. he wants, title cards. And even with that, I think he's show, he's showing you how useless words are in general. Mm-hmm. If you're a person with just such a, a vocal body. Like, like when he sees the millionaire, right? He's all sad. He's like kind of thinking about this girl that he just met. He's holding the flower. Then this drunk dude comes and tries to hang himself. And there's this whole comedy bit about a dude trying to murder himself and then accidentally almost killing, uh, like, Chaplin in the process. The first act is pretty much about stopping a man from committing suicide. Exactly. Dark humor. But what I love in this scene is there's a moment where Chaplin gives him the speech. And he's like, tomorrow the birds will sing. Be brave and face life. And it does not work. Like, he uses words. We see the words on the screen. And the words could matter nothing to this guy. He's still going to kill himself. Well, what I find interesting is that he uses words to kind of move forward the plot. Like, a lot of the title cards are about scene setting. Now we're here. Now we're here. Like, it encapsulates. Yeah, it it captures. more of here's the information that you need to enjoy the scene, less here's what they're saying in the scene. So much so that that scene where he first meets the blind flower girl, he shot it, I think, upwards of 346 times. Kubrick! Yeah. What you got, Kubrick? Because you got 100 times? I got 342 times. 342 times because he wanted to convey that she could be confused that he was wealthy. He doesn't do it through a title card. He does it through, and again, going back to this idea of the mind, like he's using his body, her body, their facial expressions to convey it. He doesn't use title cards to cheat. He uses title cards really just to help facilitate plot. I mean, a couple of things. Like, first, I think throughout history, people have blamed the 342 takes on Virginia Sherrill, the, mm-hmm. the girl playing the flower girl, because she was... A 20-year-old girl, he met her at a boxing ring. She came from a rich family. She's like the Gwyneth Paltrow of the day if Gwyneth Paltrow didn't wind up also being really, really talented. Right. And people were like, she just couldn't say flower, sir, I think was the line. He wanted her to say flower, sir, even though you couldn't hear her say it. Right. He wanted her to say it in a proper way. And I think he was very free about blaming her for that, which I don't think is totally fair. Because it really was him working out this whole idea of how is she going to know that I am rich. How well, is she going to mistake that? Which has nothing to do with her saying flowers. Well, I think you're watching a man go through a mid-career crisis here because he is bucking the trend. You know, he's doing a silent while talkies are going on. And you can see, like, his frustration is trying to do something so complex with these parameters that he himself has put on it. And, I mean, there is no love lost between these two. I mean, at one point when they talked to the actress who played the flower girl, they said, oh, is there any, like, romantic, you know issues between the two of you and she's like no no I was 20 he likes girls a lot younger than that zing yeah boom um they didn't seem to get along at all and the reason why she was even hired was because he went through dozens and dozens of auditions and couldn't find anybody he thought was right and it feels like this whole movie is like nothing is good enough yeah I mean let's hear Virginia talk about how she was hired Virginia by the way interesting fun fact about her after this movie she winds up marrying Cary Grant Oh, wow. And depending on what version of the gossip you believe, she was married to Cary Grant legitimately or she was his beard. This is her talking about being cast. Before I signed my contract with Charlie, I made very clear that I wasn't an actress, that I'd had no training of any kind. And he said, that's exactly what I want. If you had had any training, you would have to unlearn it. 
because I like to work my own way, and it's not the way anyone else works. I mean, what that sounds like to me is a control freak, to be yes. honest, which is why it's going to be interesting when we get to modern times and he works with Paulette Goddard, who is a great actress and totally holds her own against him. And I think that's also a super great film. I think Virginia Sherrill's not that bad. I, I don't think she's bad at all. I mean, as a matter of fact, he felt that she was good because she was nearsighted. So he felt like she played blind better and more realistically than other people. And I do agree that for 1931, it is a subtle performance. Um, when it didn't have to be. Wretched poor flower girl who oh. lives with her grandma and they're going to get kicked out and fed to the wolves. Like, she yeah. could have been a nightmare. You know, there's some footage online. and We can't really play it on the podcast because it's, you know, there's no sound to it. It's Charlie Chaplin directing that first scene where he first sees her. And you can see those elements of I do things differently. And I think... Probably at the time, the biggest difference is he gives a shit. Like, he wants it in a way. He sees it in a way. I remember hearing a story about David Fincher. And, you know, David Fincher used animatics for actors in dialogue scenes. You'll sit down. You'll say this line here. You'll walk over here. And, you know, and when an actor would kind of question him, well, why am I sitting down that line? He would kind of say to them, well, don't worry. Greater minds have thunk this through. You know, when you think of directors like Kubrick and Fincher, there is a similarity here between Chaplin and them. They they know the film they want to make. And you are just a cog in that machine. Like, you, no matter who he casts, they're going to give the performance that he wants, not what they're going to bring to it. And I think the best directors I've always worked with are directors who are like, let's merge what you're bringing, what I'm bringing. And I think, you know, uh, but some of the, the best directors of all time basically use actors as puppets. I think we do have kind of a, a natural, I don't know if it's daddy issues as a giant cultural thing, way of just thinking like, well, those guys must be right. You know, yeah. I, I, we look at those directors and we're like, they're correct. But I do think, just like I think when we were talking about Kubrick, that if it takes you 342 takes to get what you want, it's because you don't know what you want or you can't communicate it, not well, because the other person is screwing up. But is it ego to say, I won't use a title card here to say, she mistakes him for a rich man. It's like, no, no, no. I can do it silently. Well, you know? what he does, what he's doing silently is something based on sound. That's what I think is fascinating about it. Mm. Because she thinks he's a rich man because she hears the slam of a car door. Because he's escaped from, like, the cops or something through, like, a car door. He's just sort of slid right. in. And that slam, a, a thing signified by sound is how she mistakes him because she's deaf and that's her greatest sense. And... He's doing that in a silent movie, which is just so next level challenging. I respect that. Whenever you have a director like this, oh, they did this many takes. They were in the water. They made me do it until my hands bled. They're a genius. But then Tommy Wiseau, you hear everyone who talked about working on The Room, he did similar things and he's a madman. So I think maybe we should get closer to just saying Charlie Chaplin was a madman who made great movies. Yeah, what if the madman was the base word that we used, and then we talked about whether or not the film was good. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, this person is psychotic, but their art is good. I mean, you know... and That might be a more useful way to talk about artists. Yeah, it, because I think there is a truth to it. It's like their brain is going, no, 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 it's got to be exactly the right way. I, You know, again, going back to Fincher, I've heard a lot of different stories. And, like, he shot a scene where Robert Downey got out of a car in the movie Zodiac 67 times. There was no dialogue. It was just him getting out of a car and walking upstairs. Now, I think Zodiac is a fantastic film. 
but clearly he wanted something that he knew, it, I mean, it works, but that is, you have to say, you are a madman, and that's okay. You can be a madman and a great director. You can yeah. be a madman and a bad director. You're like, But I you mean, are a madman. The base level is that you are a madman. It doesn't mean that you have to be, like, it's like you're a madman and you're an artist. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. played Chaplin. He can get out of a car a million ways. Yeah. There's no way Fincher hasn't seen City Lights, and there's probably no way Fincher hasn't heard about Chaplin's 342 takes. Yeah. And I wonder if when you hear that when you're a film school kid or something, you think, well, I'm going to do that, or I it's can't acceptable. do that. I am allowed to do that, and that is the way that people will know I'm a genius. Well, speaking of genius, this is what Charlie Chaplin had to say about being called a genius. I don't quite know. I don't, you know, that's a much abused term, genius. And we have many of them in Hollywood. And uh, <laughs> I don't quite know the definition of a genius. Some people say it's the capacity for taking pains and so forth, etc. And all those hackneyed things have been said, but I think genius... I think it's the, a genius is an individual stylist who does things remarkably well. But uh, I don't count. I, I think all those sort of terms are not particularly important. Uh, the thing is, uh, what the public want to see is a good job, and we try to do our best. And I must say that I've never written down to the public in my life. I, I always believe that anything I... It's, it's the best that my particular shaped head knows how to do, and... And I always aspire to do the best I can for the public. So it's interesting to hear, you know, obviously, like Charlie Chaplin, genius. Charlie Chaplin, you know, when he gets his Academy Award of like lifetime recognition, you know, gets almost a, like two minutes standing ovation. Did you time that? I timed that. Yeah, how Whoa. long was it? Oh, it's like a little over 90 seconds. Yeah. They applaud from 90 seconds. It's a 90 second ovation. Oprah and rightfully so, right? I mean, rightfully so. Like he should be getting all this adulation i mean you know he is an inventor of modern cinema watching this movie i'm like this is the this is the structure of every modern comedy is city lights yeah i mean it's interesting because we don't have that many silent films represented on the list and part of me is thinking well what about mary pickford we have zero mary pickford on this list Mm -hmm. and she's as important in, in founding hollywood as he is but she's more of an actress and a producer she wasn't so much breaking new grounds in cinema the way that he was I mean, Chaplin has three films on this list, which is right. really impressive. And you touched on this at the beginning of the episode, but City Lights used to be like in the 70s and 80s. All three of his were at first clustered in the 70s and 80s. Right. And between 97 and 2007, it skyrocketed all the way up to like number 11, which is huge. I don't know what would have caused that resurgence of interest in him and particularly this film, except maybe, I don't know, was it like a rise of comedy directors Coming into power, becoming Academy voters and saying, this guy matters to me? Well, I think, you know, back to what I was just saying before. When I look at this film, I go, oh, that's the idea of, like, set pieces in a comedy. You go from here to here to here. Your your, your characters exist in these moments. Yeah, I mean, you can't lean on punchlines. I think, like, the closest thing that there is to a punchline in this, which I love and that they do through titles, is when a chaplain gets behind the wheel of the rich man. Oh, yeah. And the rich man, he tells the rich man, be careful how you're driving. And the rich man goes, am I driving? Yeah. That is the best use of a title card punchline I think I've ever seen. I'm excited to show you so many silent films because I think there's a whole world that you're just going to love. And I want to see them. And I've seen more than just the two that we've seen here. I just always kind of find myself checking out. I don't want to. I don't know why. Maybe I've just trained myself differently where I... You know, I'm engaged by dialogue and dialogue kind of turns me on in a way. I, I don't know. I, I, 
I wrestle with it because I want to be smart. I want to, I want to feel like, yes, I get this. And I'm like Kubrick and Orson Welles. I see the beauty in it. And I do see the beauty in it. I don't think this is bad. And I do believe it belongs on the list. And I do believe it belongs high up on the list. But if I'm sitting down and watching it, I'm not like, I'm all in. Okay, well then let's do this. Let's analyze your favorite comedy scene. Do you want to do that? Yeah, sure. Which of these set pieces do you love? Do you love the drunk pouring champagne down his pants? Do you no. love the party scene? Do you love the boxing scene? I think in this film, the the three sequences I love the most, uh, hands down, is a scene at the club. The scene at the club is fantastic. I would even bring that into the driving scene. Um, I love the boxing match and the end. I think the end scene is so beautifully done and and so sweetly acted. It, those three scenes to me, absolutely amazing. And I consider the boxing scene the uh, behind the ring and in the ring section. I mean, behind the ring, I almost think I like more because I feel like it's a very subtle comedy going on there. You know, he's... He's kind of trying to figure out, can I bribe this guy? Can we, you know, share the fight? Yeah, it's amazing. Like, we get given the information a little bit after the fact that he's made this deal with the boxer he's supposed to fight, that he'll take the (laughs) fall, and then they'll split the profits 50-50. And since it's 50 bucks, that gives him 25 bucks, enough to give the girl enough money to, like, keep the rent. Yeah. To, like, help keep her grandmother in pre-unsliced bread. And, and yeah, it just slowly builds because you're looking at this kind of scrawny guy and thinking, well, it's dangerous. Okay, but he's got it all taken care of, right? Yeah. He's well, fine. And then this comedy starts to build up with the dude in the back who's superstitious. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, like holding on to the lucky rabbit's foot and he's holding on to, to the, horseshoe. the horseshoe. And, and they're just watching Charlie be like, oh, I got to do that too. You know, because oh. he's a person who absorbs ideas. You watch him absorb what other people are doing and then try to do it and then it doesn't go well. Well, and then you have that moment where he comes back and then he's knocked out and he can barely keep his eyes open. Then Charlie's like basically rubbing off the luck that he rubbed <laughs> on him. And so this is where I'm conflicted. I love it. I do love it. I'm just wrestling with sitting down and watching a silent film. I, I will say that what I love about these sequences and all the sequences in the film, they're kind of like Rube Goldberg kind of conceived. It's like this happens and this happens and this happens. They're not just, you know, everything kind of leads up and it it's so fulfilling as it grows. You know, uh, the scene in the club, you know, you get the slippery floor at the beginning. That kind of continues to come in. You know, people are moving chairs in and out. Everything is so beautifully orchestrated. It is like a wonderful dance number. And to think about, you know, even the simplicity of having the cat knock the flower pot off the ledge right where his head is at or the or the boxing glove fall right on his head. Like, it, like if you're um, like a, a just an inch off, it's not as funny. And all these scenes are being shot, you know, almost in oneers. You know, it feels like he gets a oneer, then he moves on to the next oneer. You know, it's not like shot with many cuts. Camera-wise, this is sort of closer to the swing time. Yes. Where they're not moving the camera that much. They're holding it still. I mean, he barely does any camera movements, honestly. He, like, puts the camera there, and you watch the action go. It's very static, which is weird, because that was the main reason why a lot of silent people didn't want to go into sound, is because a sound camera was so heavy that you couldn't move it around, and they're like, I've just learned how to dance with this camera and do things with this camera. Don't make me not be able to move the camera for the sound equipment. And Charlie's like, I don't have sound equipment, and I'm still not moving it. Do you think that Charlie Chaplin is a little bit like Peter Bogdanovich, pulling from the past but looking to the future? You know, here here he is making a film that is 
of 1931, but using the techniques of the 20s and earlier, they are providing the bridge for audiences to start accepting a, a different type of storytelling. Well, it's weird. I mean, I feel like in 31, audiences had just accepted sound. They were done, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, to the point that if you went to a movie theater in 1931, they didn't even have orchestras anymore the, the way that they would have four years ago. You know, if you went to the silent film in 27, they were going to have orchestras. Okay. And Charlie Chaplin's movies in 1927, they were going to play kind of what the orchestra wanted. You know, he could right. have sheet music, but they also might just be like, we're going to do Cotton Eye Joe here. I don't know if the Cotton Eye Joe existed in 1927. Don't at me, bro. Too. Don't at me, bro. It might have. Who knows? Cotton Eye Jeeves or whatever they would have called it back then. But, <laughs> but yeah, like... I kind of am fascinated by this idea that here is this control freak who for a lot of his career had just let his films go off into the universe and be scored with kind of whatever. He didn't have that much of a choice. Right. And here in City Lights, he gets to do something I think very modern, which is write his own score for a sound movie, knowing that he had to because there wasn't going to be an orchestra. If he didn't make a score for this, there wouldn't be music. Like, what would you do? But yet he steals the score. Sort of. Okay. Sort of. He's he stole one song. He stole well, one song. Like, okay, he wrote one a song. lot of the rest of it. He okay. wrote a lot of the rest of it. I, but then that's happy. All right, that's good to know because when I was doing my research, it was this idea that he lost a lawsuit because uh, the main motif of this piece is this, you know, the the Blind Flower Girl song. And that was a song from a Spanish composer, uh, Jose Padilla. La Violeta, I think. Don't at me, bro. Um <laughs> But he just kind of just ripped that off and then put it in. And maybe he thought, oh, I composed the rest. So that can all kind of come together. But it was also the sign of, let's call it, the madman. Who's like, yeah, yeah, no, that's mine. Uh, that's mine. Because yeah. I, I, I put it in the movie. So that's mine now. But what I love about it is he's thinking on this galaxy brain level where he's like, I'm not going to say, hey, to this drunk rich guy who's committing suicide by the bridge. I'm thinking about this girl. I'm just going to have the music shift into that song just for a little bit. Mm. And that way you'll know I'm telling this guy about a girl. And I don't even have to have any title cards. Here, listen to this. This is where you can tell that he's talking about the girl to the drunk man because he puts the, the song in. I think in that way, he's not just being a throwback and saying, I don't want to do talking. Right. Which, by the, you know, when you heard his voice in that clip that, hello, I'm a British man. Yeah. That wouldn't work for this character anyways, for an American tramp. You can't be, I'm a little British man. And- well, it's so funny, you know, obviously doing some research here. I never really put it together that Charlie Chaplin was British. I, I, think, I think I've heard that in the past. But when you think of this character, you th- maybe I think of him as just a... An American character. You know, I don't think of him as, uh, you know. What do you think he sounds like? I want to hear you do a voice. Oh, it's interesting. You know, it, I don't even think I have a voice for Chaplin because I feel of he's so without voice. Yeah. Even though he speaks in these films. Like, he, he is speaking. He's not, you know, he's not silent. Huh. I don't know what he sounds like. He doesn't sound like Charlie Chaplin mm-hmm. to me. What do you think he sounds I like? Does he sound like this? Hi, ma'am. Can I buy a flower? No. Okay. Come on. Does he sound like this? Ha, can I buy a flower? Why is everyone Southern? Because I can't do accents, man. Um, like, everything's Southern to me. I, I would think he's like, uh, hmm, this is actually a great thing that we should ask the listeners <laughs> of the show to do. What do you think Charlie Chaplin's voice sounds like? I, I would say it sounds like, 
you know, I just, you know, I'm a little uh, freaked out. <laughs> a little, maybe the little uh, Woody Allen. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be with the thing. You know, maybe, maybe Woody Allen is is Charlie Chaplin in my. Oh, mind. in more ways than one, according to Virginia Sherrill. Well, I mean, boom, boom, bang. But what I was trying to say with that clip of La Violetta is he's galaxy braining this whole sound thing because what he does in City Lights right. is he's one of the first people, maybe the first, to realize what a complete score was. To realize mm-hmm. I want to write music that covers this whole movie wall to wall. And I have to because I have right. to have some sort of sound here. And I'm going to use it to kind of steer the audience's emotions. And that's what he does, I think, so fantastically. I mean, Steady Lights is really the beginning of somebody composing for a movie in a time where they were sort of torn between like interstitial kind of comedy, weird little music and jagged little bits of things over here. He really writes something beautiful. I actually love the score for this because, you know, Charlie Chaplin, he played violin. He taught himself. He was an amateur musician. They say that he composed a lot of the score by just sitting next to somebody who could actually write music and being like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and they would write down his da-da-da-da-da. They say he couldn't read music. I think they might have been being humble. But let's do a couple of the early bars of his opening song because I think the score sounds so fresh. I love it. wild it's like this oh propulsive waltz but it's angry it's strange it's weird the music definitely connects throughout the whole film and you're right it, he he treats it almost like like an opera and you know they said that he composed the entire score in six weeks with arthur johnson and that is impressive i mean to have someone we hear a lot about you know Directors who are shooters or directors who are editors, but we don't hear about directors who are scoring their own film and starring in their own film. That is, he clearly was a performer who was trying to stay afloat in a world that was changing around him. And so he put this pressure on himself to step up the game in every way. Like, would he have done this? Would he have made this movie if talkies weren't around. I don't know if it would have been this good because I think he had something to prove. He needed to compete on this level. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think something to prove is exactly right. You know, because in the interviews he was giving at the time, he was calling this like obsession with talkies that in four years had radically changed the industry that he was in charge of. He was the boss. He was the boss, dude. He was calling it hysteria. Let's take a break to thank one of Unspooled's sponsors, Fracture. I love Fracture. My giant Fracture order just showed up, so let's talk about it. What Fracture is, is it is a way to take and share your photos online and then make them dimensional. Print them onto glass, hang them on your wall, so that the memories that you took this weekend, you just get to have forever for not that much money. I mean, here is what Fracture is doing for you. So much of our lives, our memories exist only on our phones. And if this if this has not happened to you, you're a very lucky person, that you lose photos, that you update your phone, that your phone gets wet, and all of these memories that you love are gone. Sometimes I look at my aunt and uncle and their photo albums and I think, we need that. Well, Fracture is that, because Fracture will take your favorite photos and it will print them directly on glass and make them ready to display out of the box. They even include the wall hanger so you can just put them up right there. I love Fracture because... I made a gigantic fracture order. I'm worried that I already spoiled uh, the surprise, but it's for this bachelorette party. Everybody's getting a souvenir picture that I made from them. I love it. And what was made it extra, 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 extra special is knowing that I could then get some extra fractures for just separate gifts for people. I'm like ready for some birthday presents for a long time. 
I went through and I was like, this is my favorite picture of my friend and her fiance. Well, now she has it forever. So what is so perfect about Fracture is that if you're looking for a way to spruce up your home or your friend's life, you can be thinking about it right now. Like I'm going to take a picture that they're going to love and I'm going to send it to Fracture and they're going to print it in Gainesville, Florida for materials sourced right in the U.S. That means they are a green company operating a carbon neutral factory and you will get the most personalized gift that I really believe you can do. And also, I will be remiss if I did not admit that I have now some fracture prints of my cat because my cat is incredibly beautiful. If you've seen my Instagram, you know that I have a very beautiful cat. Check him out, the Amy Nicholson. Gorgeous cat. He is now immortalized to me. So if you want to immortalize anything in your life, a friend, you, a, a selfie, if that's the kind of person you are, hey, if you're beautiful, show it off. Go to FractureMe.com slash unspooled for a special discount on your first fracture order. Don't forget to pick Unspooled in the one question survey after checkout. They'll be like, how did you hear about us? Say a podcast, then pick Unspooled. You will get your special discount. So go to FractureMe.com slash Unspooled and get decorated. Charlie Chaplin is a dude who never had the easiest life, but just, and I'm sure we're going to get into that earlier when we do the gold rush, which is even before this. So we can save a lot of his biography for that. But in the years right before City Lights came out, he went through this really bad divorce, really bad public divorce, where his like, wife was saying how much he had been cheating on her. His movie right before this, The Circus, was not the biggest hit. You know, he owed like $1.6 million in back taxes. So that's like basically wow. like he owed that much money and then he spent also that much money on this film. And he was really living on the edge. Yes. When you do some research on this film, it feels like someone going – this is going to make or break me. This is my avatar. Yeah, it took him, what, like three years to make this movie or, you know, some version of that. Yeah, you and know, he was keeping, like, the cast and crew on salary and on call and still barely shooting. For 22 months. And we we talk about all these movies, Titanic. These big directors make— Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. These movies that feel like they're going to be a hot mess coming into the theater. And, you know, every now and then— you get like your Ishtars or your uh, Heaven's Gate. But for the most part, you know, the films that are on this list are, oh my God, it's hurtling towards disaster. And it's now, you know, one of the most regarded films of, of our history. But again, I think to do this job well and to be a great director, you need to make sure that you, I don't know, the best directors are probably dicks, you know, and, and that and that's not a, uh, you can have female dicks, you can have male dicks. I'm just saying that, that you are probably... You have to fight battles to make people see your vision. And I think that that is, you know, whether that's in the post, whether it's in the selling of the movie, whatever it is, you you have to know what you want. It's interesting. I wonder if we're going to keep feeling this way forever. Because I think there's an argument to be made that people like Charlie have to fight for everything because they come in as though it's going to be a fight. Right. I wonder if there's a new style of director kind of coming forward who... It's just nicer, and you don't have to fight as much. Maybe, hopefully, but I do believe that this business is about fighting. You always have to fight, and some people are good at fighting and taking care of their crew. There are other people that are, you know, that no executives want to deal with them, and you see it when you have a dick director. The minute they mess up, everyone's like, bye-bye, motherfucker, you're done. Like, you know, because they they can't give up on them when they're creating successful things. Like, but once you start doing a failure, it's like, get out of here, see you later. And um doesn't matter how much of a genius you are, once you start to create this world where people want you to fail because you're nasty, they're just waiting, they want it so bad. I mean, let's go back to like the idea of of the silent films for a little bit. And like, 
the way the comedy works for me, this is how I feel. This is why I really like them is because I get restless. You were talking about how you feel like you see the end of the bit coming. And I feel like that I can totally agree where you're with what you're right. coming from. But I like how he lets you be one beat ahead of where he is in the film. Mm-hmm. For example, when the streamers are falling down in this giant dance scene, you have that little like 30 second lead of, oh, my God, a streamer's going to fall on the pasta. Right. Because you're like, look at all that tableside pasta. Is, was tableside pasta a thing? I don't know. I Believe me, I want tableside pasta after <laughs> I saw that. I think Medieval yeah. Times has like tableside service like that. Yeah. But then like the pasta starts like getting heaped onto the plates and then the streamers start falling and you have that moment of he's going to do this mistake. Oh, my God. Right. And I think that's what gets me engaged is I like being just a millisecond above. Right. And I know I keep on bringing back my whole theory about these movies sharing similar DNA with Jackass. It's like you dangle this thing in front and you're like, oh, is it going to happen? And it's so fun to be on that journey. And I love that pasta beat. I'm not saying I'm getting ahead of the jokes. It's just sort of a, it's sort of like, all right, now I'm in this short film. I mean, this film is a bunch of little shorts. You know, it's a tramp at the club, the tramp at the prison, the tramp at doing this, you know, like, and, but I think what makes this movie better than that is the interstitials that connect them have a little bit more story. Let's actually talk about the way that Charlie Chaplin thought about pacing and doing these bits. I think it works in really well. This is another piece of his interview. Uh, there is a, a tendency for everybody to speed up. Yeah. But I think we're getting too much speed. I like to dally a little bit, you know, and just uh, get the audience to know you a little bit. And that's what I think I've done in this film. I've tried to uh, pause for a moment so that people and the audience and the characters can get acquainted. And, you know, going into what I was saying about influencing films, I think that's really what he kind of left. He took the kind of crazy pacing and allowed, I think this is what comedy has become. Like, you see where it's going, you get to play with the idea of it, you get to live in the idea of it. It's, you know, in improv, they call it the game. Like, you you set up the premise, and then you kind of repeat the premise, and you heighten it. And I feel like that's exactly what Charlie Chaplin's doing, but he's not rushing by it. It's not a one joking out. It's like, here's the premise, heighten, 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 and then we go out. I mean, maybe that's the thing that you can do when you're a guy with a big ego that you've earned. Mm -hmm. You can say the audience is going to be with me. I don't have to be like, pie in the face, dog tripping over a leash. He was like, I am the number one star on the planet. To which, to that point, I will say, you know, in the last year, I went to like a lot of weird film festivals all over the world. I went to like Kazakhstan and Egypt and Istanbul. And if there is one common thing that all of those film festivals have in common, in their opening night, there is Always a Charlie Chaplin impersonator. Always. Wow. And now it's like this running little gag in my heart that Charlie Chaplin is like the number one thing where a century later, there's always a dude coming out with a little mustache. Always. It's like invariable. There's wow. going to be like wine well, he's a Chaplin. He, he's a worldwide star. I mean, this movie plays anywhere. There's nothing about this movie that needs to be uh, translated except for the title cards. It's true. And I mean, what he's making fun of, I think, plays in every country. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to think about how much this movie is making fun of the rich mm-hmm. as being overly decadent, as not appreciating what they have, as being worse than the poor girl who lives with her grandmother and putting that in the context of the Great Depression. Let's even go back one step further. I think this movie is a little bit autobiographical. I, you know, the research I've done, you know, it's sort of like this rich, drunk man represents his father, who was also a drunk. And this woman uh, represents his mother. And it's it's knowing that and watching the film gave it a little bit of a greater gravitas. Like, here's someone who wants to connect 
you know, and he can only connect with his dad when he's drunk. And then when the minute the morning comes and I think there's a great title card, it's like the drunk man becomes totally different. You know, it's like to feel that as a child that your father changes and is cold and distant and won't let you in the house, won't let you into his heart when he's sober. I, I thought that was a really, you know, a very beautiful and poignant story that he's telling. It's not just about like the decadent rich. It's sort of like the personality of an alcoholic. Although I can't help also seeing a little bit of Charlie himself in this idea of a guy going through a bad divorce. Okay. And everybody knows about it. And what do you do when you're rich and unhappy? You know, I feel like there's almost this kind of like double layer to it on both ends. But that that level of being forgotten. There's this story that Roger Ebert tells about about seeing Chaplin in the 70s. Mm-hmm. They did a screening of City Lights in like the main square in Venice. And they watched the film, like thousands of people crammed into the square and they were loving it. And at the end, there was this noise and Chaplin, a light went on and he was on a balcony and he waved and everybody just burst into applause. And Chaplin looked so happy. And then the second half of the story, according to Roger Ebert, is the next night he was at a restaurant and he saw Chaplin walk in in the doorway and Chaplin looked miserable. And there's this beat where Roger looked at him and he was like, oh, my God, it's Chaplin. And Chaplin looks upset. And Chaplin is looking around this restaurant, looking nervous, as though he's worried nobody knows who he is. And then suddenly the whole restaurant realizes Chaplin is in the doorway. And they're like, Chaplin. And they start applauding. And he lights up. And Ebert was like, in that moment, I saw this young boy who was always worried he was going to be forgotten. And he felt like he had just been forgotten again. And last night's applause wasn't enough. You know, he needed it again. He couldn't survive. Sadly, as an actor, I think I understand that in a very intense way. Really? But yeah, I think, you know, look, we're all doing it to get attention on some level. And I think the story of this woman who appreciates him not for who he is, but for what he does is an interesting story in that. It's like, she loves me. I mean, if we're taking it out of the characters of the movie, she loves me for me not for being Charlie Chaplin. And I think that that's an interesting story. It's like, if that is his mother or if that is his dream relationship, you know, the idea that I just want to be loved. And once they see me at the end, will they accept me? That's so dark. Well, it's extra dark because he's not even being himself when she can't see him. Right. You know, there's that whole scene where she's winding up a ball of yarn and she's unwinding his own shirt. Right. And it's hurting him and it's not comfortable. And he's, this man has But he's giving himself- for love, like he just wants to be there for love, like that, like yeah. that's how, like, like he wants. I mean, it's sad. It like it's that. Sad that yeah, he's not able to say that's my shirt. He's hiding no. even his own misery because from this person. He's it's not making himself. her happy. Exactly, but he's also not being true. She doesn't get to know who he is either in that moment. Uh, but I think that like we were talking about this another show uh, that I did on how this get made, like this idea that like all these movies are based in problematic relationships. I mean, I think comedy comes out of problematic relationships. It's If it was a drama, you could play it in a very different way. I mean, he's lying to this woman. He's creating, like, even though his heart is in the right place, he is a liar. It's a, you know, it's, it's like that classic Steve Gutenberg movie, which you said is your favorite. Don't tell her it's me. Where he pretends <laughs> to be an Australian motorcycle guy, but he's just a nerdy dude. I do like Gutenberg. How dare you use that against me? <laughs> I mean, that's it. I think it is a very childish view of love and I don't hold that against the film. It's mm-hmm. just a childish view of love that I think is really sweet. And he even wanted to lean into that. He was But do you think it's that, childish like, or cynical? I think it's cynical. I think the idea like this woman takes everything from me And then when she, you know, and then discards me when she 
is happy and successful. I mean, the, like a cynical, like uh, a beautiful view of love is like, oh my gosh, we connected. I don't need to pretend to be anything <laughs> other. You know, it's like we love each other, and I helped her, and da da da. Like he's saying, I helped her. And the only way she would accept me is knowing that I'm rich. And then I give her everything. I give her literally the shirt off my back. And then she's like, well, no, no, now I can see and I'm successful and I don't need you. Like, I I think it's a very cynical view of love. I mean, you're right. I think it's both. I think it's childish in terms of, I did everything right, didn't I? Mm -hmm. And cynical in terms of women be crazy. Right. But maybe she does love him at the end. I don't know. I don't think so. But I don't think she's a bad person for not loving him because he is even more trampy at the end and at the beginning. The only reason why he's a tramp, though, is because he gave all of his money to her. That's true. But the only reason he had money is he took it from a drunk guy. Who gave him love. You know, like he, like, I mean, and look, that relationship, like he saved a drunk man from killing himself. Yeah. Right? He deserves a car for that. Yeah, probably. I mean, the drunk man doesn't need the car. The drunk man has a lot of cars. The drunk man has too much money. There is such a thing as too much money in this. And you know what? I will say in the year 2019, I want more films that... Tell us that the rich people have too much money. And then you come down to this thing, which is it's problematic behind the scenes, but kind of perfection on on screen. And we're going to get to this with a lot of films. Well, not a lot, but I can definitely see three in front of us where we go problematic director. How do you view their movies? And yeah, I, I, I'm I, talking I, about the moment when the Zoki Hedon is going to finally land on Annie Hall or Chinatown. Yeah. This I'm, is a moment we've been worried about. Exactly. And, I, I, you know, and I, I, and I think it, it's worthy of talking about, and I go back and forth on this, because it also is like the films themselves are a part and parcel of a larger thing. Like We live in a culture that just canceled John Wayne. Right. Uh, they just know. they just did it. We're like, guys. Yeah. Where, where have you been? Well, today, uh, as we're recording this, there's an article being passed around about Tim Allen wanting to use the N word. And it was from 2013. Doesn't make it any bit better. But we're in this world right now where we are, you know, looking back in a big way. And I think that you're talking about Charlie Chaplin and the way he treated women and the way he did stuff. It's like we have a lot of these problematic directors. We're going to get into it. And and I don't know the best way to kind of handle Neither this Neither do stuff. I, honestly. I really don't. I mean I, I mean, I don't know if this gives us any sort of peace, but in a way, this conversation isn't new. I mean, in, in 1950, they brought City Lights back for like another tour of theaters. Right. And the Memphis, Tennessee decided to ban it by the censor because he thought Chaplin had a moral behavior. Mm-hmm. He was really mad that Chaplin had in media, real life. In real life, wow. he thought that Chaplin had secretly fathered a child, which was a big rumor that I think is probably true. To be right. honest, uh, that Chaplin had been taking like young women across state lines for moral purposes. Wow. Also, a thing Chaplin did. So he was canceled in 1950, but then not canceled permanently. And I don't know if that gives me hope or not that we're going to cancel or uncancel people depending on their films. It's a lot of canceling and uncanceling. I don't it's know. It's tricky, and I, I would say, as someone who's been in films and TV, it's it's a group effort, and there's a lot of different place pieces at play. And and you know, can you separate the art from the artist? It, it's a big conversation. That I, I think that we'll, when we get to those big films, it's worthy of talking about. I think that this is an interesting one because Charlie Chaplin is still so revered, but has a problematic past. As if we have we forgotten his past. Is I there think a forget clause? We forget until someone brings it back to the surface. I mean, John Wayne, that Playboy interview wasn't like on earth. It was. We read excerpts of it on the show. I didn't right. even read those because they were so bad and I was already going hard on the film. I thought, oh. Right. I mean, like, it's out there. This material is out there. It's just a matter of whether or not we shine a spotlight on it. 
And uh, all that to be said. I, I love City Lights. <laughs> I look. I am. I am into City Lights. I, I watch this movie, and I enjoy it. And if we talked about this idea like last week about West Side Story versus um, Singing in the Rain, and Singing in the Rain being a joy bomb, this is so fun, but it's not a joy bomb to me. I I, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is like the. Do you think this is like the best version of Charlie Chaplin? Is this like? Would you put this the highest? On the list, because this is the highest chaplain on the list. They're all good. I mean, I think I've seen Modern Times more. Modern okay. Times is definitely the one I'm more familiar with. And that with. one definitely is like kind of taking down like Hitler, right? That's like, that's... That's Great, oh, Dictator. Great Dictator. Sorry. The Great Dictator. Sorry. I love Great Dictator. That one's not on the list, which bums me out a little bit. I mm-hmm. think The Great Dictator is wonderful. This one, I think, is well-rounded. You know, it's it's a tramp that doesn't get saccharine. It's a tramp that's wonderful. You know, with me, I'm I'm always death to capitalism. So right. there's a part of my soul that really loves modern times for that reason. Yeah. We also have the gold rush, you know, which is like early, which is really what helps not launch him. He was already the hugest star in the world by the teens. Mary Pickford herself was like mad because he started to quickly make as much money as she did when she'd been around a lot longer. Wow. Uh, yeah, because that's always been a problem that's happened. I mean, it is weird to me that we do have three chaplains and one Buster Keaton. That's not my favorite Buster Keaton, but that's a whole other story. Well, I mean, couldn't you have a chaplain, a Pickford, and a Keaton? What's weird is as much as I think Mary Pickford is important, I don't know if there's a film of hers that I would put on the list. Mm. You know, because Mary Pickford is more, I think, the silent films that you don't like. Like, hello, I am an urchin. Help me. My uncle has taken my inheritance. What do I do? And they're really important because she was massively successful. Her success made Hollywood important. She made Hollywood important. She is hugely important, and her films, I think, have not aged. I think City Lights has transitioned well. I think City Lights is still as good today as it was before. I mean, watching it, like I said earlier, it's the modern DNA of all comedy. And for that purpose alone, I think it it is perfect for being that high. Because... Why I, while I might not feel like it's the movie that I might pop in, it is a movie that I think if you're learning about film, if you're watching film, you have to acknowledge this person did it best and set the groundwork for everything that comes after it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like in 1966, somebody asked Charlie Chaplin, do you think the modern times do you think that the tramp would work in modern times? Modern times meaning 1966. Mm-hmm. And that's over 50 years ago from today. And Charlie Chaplin was like, no. His his stance was that I don't think there's any place for that sort of person now. The world has become a bit more ordered. I don't think it's happier now. I've noticed the kids with their short clothes and their long hairs. I think some of them want to be tramps. But I don't think there's the same humility now. They don't know what humility is. And so humility has become something of an antique. It belongs to another era. And I mm. am fascinated by the idea that humility is the word that he saw central. Well, we talked about this character. He's a low-status character who treats himself like high status. But there is something very humble about this character, too, and very forthright, but yet not saccharine. It, 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 like humility might be the perfect word for this type of character because it's not something that fits into a box, Because what he's doing here in this movie is making something that captures all these emotions without words, without that clunky dialogue. And I think when I watch this stuff and I look at this as 
as a writer and a director myself, I go, wow, you can do so much with so little. And it makes you realize how much we rely upon words, how much we rely upon all these tricks to communicate when if you're really good at what you can do, you can do it all so much more subtly. It's true. I mean, we haven't talked enough about the boxing scene. Oh, yeah. I love the boxing scene. It's amazing. I love the way that his knees are bobbing back and forth. I love the way that he won't sit down. I love the heart that you see in him. Mm -hmm. I love how clever it is with the choreography. I mean, that scene is amazing because I feel like I'm pulled by every single emotion. I'm like, stay down. Don't stay down. Get up. What are you doing? He might win this. And then the fact that, spoiler alert, I guess, he loses the boxing match is perfect. You know, because... I think a lesser film might have let him win, honestly. He deserves to win. There's a moment where you think he might actually pull it out. Well, that's the kind of twists and turns that go on here. And I think that the thing that you're talking about, that boxing match, which kind of grabs me as well, is how infectious it was on set. This is the only time that uh, people said that was a fun time on set. They had over 100 extras there. Many of them were Charlie Chaplin's friends. And the extra count grew every day because they were coming to watch Charlie Chaplin, you know, pantomime boxing, you know, and... Uh, it was like watching a one-man show or, you know, a three-person show because it was boxing and the ref, you know, and the other opponent. Uh, but I love that idea that people were coming there just to watch this scene. And they said that Charlie fed off that, which goes to your Roger Ebert story, which is like, you know, he's getting attention for the sequence. So you you see a performance there that's amazing. And, the you know, the the kind of flying the wire work that he's doing in that scene is it's so funny. I mean, he is his body is doing things that seem unnatural. Yeah, and he's using sound effects. You know, I mean, this is such a good example of him being able to figure out where that line is between him and silent and sound. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it here with the little joke where the bell keeps getting rung. Yeah. Let's listen to that. I mean, there's so many layers to that sound that I just want to point out really fast. Yeah. Like, A, you've got the suspenseful violins, where you're nervous. Those are nervous violins. Yeah. Those are psycho violins. And then you've got this kind of cuckoo sound, which to me is the sound of, like, you get hit on the head and you see the birds flying over you. Right, yeah. And it's just random, and it it punctuates the violins in a way that doesn't even make sense, and it's so wonderful. And then you have the comedy of him having the sound effect of the bell. Chaplin hits the bell. Maybe the match is over. The referee gives him a glare. The referee hits the bell again. He's saying so much without saying a word. You know, there's also a whole joke just based on sound effects. That's back when he's at another rich party, a party I would love to go to where the dude is wearing a hat that looks like, I don't know, is it supposed to be a baked Alaska or a cantaloupe? I can't tell. I want to have that party. Oh, my gosh. That You mean the bald-headed guy with the... Yeah, uh, yes. with the sunbeam, whatever that yeah, thing yeah. is. Yeah, whatever that is. It's a good look. It's a good look. And he swallows a whistle right before somebody's about to sing opera. Right. It's just another scene where he's like, I know y'all want sound. And I'll give you the sound that I want. So a dude's about to sing opera, and Charlie has swallowed a whistle, and this is what happens. Because he has the hiccups. Yes. Let's take a second right now to talk about Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix. They are an online personal styling service that finds, delivers clothes, shoes, accessories, whatever you want to fit whoever you are. We're talking about your body, your budget, your lifestyle. Stitch Fix helps you groom all of that. Cover up everything, highlight everything, fit your day with the clothes, shoes, and accessories they think you will like. 
What Stitch Fix can do is it can help you find your new favorite piece of clothing because sometimes the best person to pick something up for you is not actually you. If it is you, this is how you wind up dressing the same way all the time. I mean, I have six pairs of the same exact pair of pants. That's madness. Stitch Fix is the sort of site that helps you not do that, that helps you be an individual person every day with new things that you might love. So what you want to do is you want to go to stitchfix.com unspooled, tell them your size, tell them what you like, tell them how much you want to spend on each item, and they will pair you with your own personal stylist. And what this personal stylist will do is they will look at everything that you want to be, and they will handpick five items to send right to your door right then. You try them on, and if you like them, you keep them, and you only pay for the ones that you like. Then you return the rest, and they take care of shipping, exchanges, returns. They're all free. And the best part of Stitch Fix is that there is no subscription required. That means you're not going to be getting, like, the sorcerer's apprentice of new clothes just showing up. Oh my god, how do I make them stop? I don't like these. That is not how Stitch Fix works at all. You sign up to receive scheduled shipments, and that means you can get your fix whenever you want. Plus, their styling fee is only $20, which is applied towards anything that you keep from your shipment. They're like, hey, that's our fee, but if you really like it, it means we did our job really well, and so it's just folded into the cost of it all. So get started now at stitchfix.com unspooled, and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That is stitchfix.com unspooled to get started today. stitchfix.com unspooled. Well, Paul, let's talk to somebody who knows everything about Chaplin. Let's talk to a guy. His name is Dan Kamen. He's a comedian. He's a mime. He's a magician. He does everything with his body. He wrote two books on Chaplin. I don't know how many books you've written on Chaplin. Only He's four. written two. <laughs> he wrote a book called The Comedy of Charlie Chaplin, and then he wrote a book called Charlie Chaplin's One Man Show. And then get this, he trained both Johnny Depp and also a little actor named Robert Downey Jr. and how to be Chaplin for the movies Chaplin and for Benny and June. You know when like Johnny Depp yes. does a little like, I'm bread and I'm dancing on a fork? Yeah. That is the work of Dan Kamen. So hello, Dan. Okay, so we did an episode of Unspooled earlier on a Buster Keaton film. We talked a lot about his face and how we called him Old Stone Face. I would love for, just for you to tell us about Chaplin's face. How important was his face? What does he do with it? What does his face add to his comedy? You know, he uh, constructed his face out of makeup and that mustache. Uh, when you see him without makeup and the mustache in his early films, because he does appear without uh, that sometimes, not nearly as distinctive. Uh, one of the things he discovered was um, how to make himself stand out simply by painting his face whiter than everybody else's on, in the scene. Also, he had one of the great, the all-time great smiles in movie history. He had rather large, some, some one writer uh, called his teeth equine. <laughs> he had <laughs> teeth that were really large for his mouth, and sometimes when you see him closing his mouth, they don't seem to be able to quite cover his teeth. But it doesn't look that way in when he's in his character makeup. It just looks like one of the greatest, warmest smiles. Chaplin was born, it, he might as well have just been plucked from a Dickens novel. Uh, he was born to an alcoholic father, a music hall singer father, who abandoned the family before he was two years old. Within Within a few years, his mother had gone insane and was in and out of mental hospitals. By the age of nine, because his, his father... Uh, didn't want to pay child support. Uh, he, his father arranged for him to get into a, a dancing troupe. Um, and he was essentially touring for two and a half years or so with a tap dancing troupe, precision tap dancing, the clog dancing, as they called it. But he really found his, his road to what eventually he would become 
in the world of knockabout physical comedy, as it was then practiced on the London stage. Was that because it was extremely physical, or was it just another word for, you know, kind of this mime style of comedy? Well, both. It was a, it was a style of, I mean, people took lots of falls. Chaplin, right. you know, this, this, this made him extremely uh, ready for the world of early silent movie comedy, as practiced by Max Sennett, who saw him during his years, four years of touring America, uh, Chaplin could fall, but he could fall funnier than other people. He he would fall backwards and his legs would stay there, kind of behind them, or he would fall into a kind of a, a, a tub of water and his legs would be straight up. <laughs> and so Senate said, come up with something else, we're doing a film. And he went into the costume shop and he just picked clothes that looked real different from each other, as different as possible. Big pants, small coat, great big shoes, small hat. Um, and uh, as soon as he put the costume on um, and he added the little fussy mustache, uh, he recognized what the first joke was with the character, was that he was going to be a bum, clearly wearing misfit clothing, but he was going to hold himself like a lord. And so you immediately have this this tension between wealth and poverty expressed in his in his demeanor and in, in the way he holds himself. You know, just thinking about this and hearing about his background, I kind of brought up this point in our last episode when we talked about Buster Keaton. You know, they talk about like there's no real silent film being made anymore, but I think the closest comparison could be to the Jackass films in a way, because they're doing these extremely physical bits that I think are so visceral on a level. I mean, uh, do you see uh, any truth to that at all? Like the way that people responded to watching someone use their body as a means to get a, a comedic reaction? Well, I think a better example is is uh, the film that won Best Picture, Green Book, is a brilliant physical film, a visual film. Um, we get the information conveyed about his attitude about black people um, at the very beginning because he simply takes two bottle, two glasses that the men have been drinking out of the repair people that have come to his apartment and he throws them into the trash. And no dialogue is spoken. Right. And all through that film, it's done with a. It's directed by Peter Farrelly, of course. Right. So it's he has got a great keen sense of physical communication, as we know from his earlier comic movies. Yes. And, but it's very visually eloquent, but the average movie of today, with the exception of uh, chase movies like the Bourne movies and Mission Impossible and so on, if you turn the sound off, the, film's dis the film disappears because you have essentially talking heads. Right. Um, and they couldn't do that in silent films. And Chaplin was one of the first to recognize that you couldn't tell the stories with, with just dialogue subtitles. Uh, you had to, he, he realized that his job in a silent film, even more so than on stage, was to literally make every single thing he did funny, exploring how how do you walk funny? How do you tip your hat funny? How do you step onto a curb or turn a corner right. funny? Some of these things he brought with him from the stage, um, but a lot of them, you can watch him inventing them because he made 36 films in his first year, and by the third month, they were becoming so popular. His name wasn't even on the credits, but the, the word started coming in from the, the the exhibitors. More films with the guy with the mustache. More films with the wow. baggy pants guy. More films with Edgar English. They knew he was English because of the you know the fussy little yeah. man that he portrayed. And uh, 
and, and he used that clout immediately to take artistic control. He said, I don't want anybody else directing me or writing my stories. And, and he'd never done that on the stage, but he felt ready after uh, growing up on, on the stage quite literally. Uh, he felt he had taken enough orders. Now, I mean, clearly he had a lot of power and a lot of creative say and was able to make these really kind of everlasting films. We were talking a little bit about Buster Keaton, I think, doesn't even get as much uh, respect as Charlie Chaplin. Is there anything in his career that he regretted? You know, anything that he felt like was maybe a misstep? Or do you feel like he was very happy with the way his career kind of unfolded? Well, he agonized over feature films. Um, Keaton and Lloyd seemed to go smoothly into features. And uh, for Chaplin, the the issue of of, uh, making a feature, you had to really stretch to to create a larger story arc than you would with a short. As he made films like The Kid, he felt that, you know, what he's doing is he's as good as a director as he is as an actor, he felt. Now, nobody in the public cared about him being a director or having the credit, you know, story by the writer or director. Um, he cared about it. And he made a serious film, rather like Woody Allen when he made the film Interiors. It was mm. not a comedy. It was a serious film. It was called A Woman of Paris. This film blew film critics away and it blew other people in the industry away because it was uh, at a time when movies were quite histrionic and the cliches of silent movies, overdone acting and so on. The acting in this was incredibly subtle and the directorial touches and how the information was conveyed uh, was very, very smart. Uh, for example, they would show a train coming past a station without the train there, just using a, uh, a cardboard cutout thing that they would pass in front of a light. As it turned out, though, the public was not interested in seeing a Charlie Chaplin film without Charlie Chaplin in it. Right. And it was, although the film was not a flop, it made it made its money back. But it it was it shook him up because it, he realized his career was uh, constrained by the character. The character had become, in a sense, his prison. And if he departed from it, the public wasn't going to necessarily go along with him. Well, so thinking of like how long Chaplin's been just this huge figure in the zeitgeist, you know, in 1992 and in 1993, you helped on this pair of films. You helped. Robert Downey Jr. do Chaplin, and you helped Johnny Depp uh, do some Chaplin moves in Benny and June. I was wondering if you could talk about like what each of them as individuals really was able to capture in their own way about Chaplin. Well, Robert had a difficult job because he was, he was playing Chaplin. That would be like they're saying, uh, we're going to make a film about uh, Pavarotti, and Paul, you're going to play Pavarotti, and by the way, no dubbing. Yeah, right. Yourself. Yeah. Um, because there's no way to, to have a stuntman or fake the movement because the movement is the essence of Chaplin's art. And, you know, I wanted to infuse Robert with that so that even when he's off, when he's not playing the character, which he is most of the time not playing the character in the film, that he had that sense of Elon about him. Right. And, and so we just drilled and worked for forever to, uh, to get Robert to simulate that. And I thought he did a wonderful job. Um, with Johnny, we didn't have to imitate anybody. Uh, I mean, he actually became quite obsessed with Buster Keaton. Um, but the routines that he does, uh, to put them, to make them work in a context, they were more Chaplin-esque than Keaton-esque, but they're not Chaplin either, except for the one that we quoted, of course, of the dance of the bread rolls. Those are just things that I made up for 
that seemed to work in the context of the movie for somebody who is uh, has got this peculiar ability to to sort of sum it up a silent movie sort of solution to a to a problem like cleaning the house by rolling around on an ottoman when you to, to get the dust in the corner. So this has been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. And where can people find more of your work and, and more of the things that you've written about uh, Chaplin? Well, anybody who wants to find out about my work, because I, I'm essentially, when I do, uh, when I write books about Charlie Chaplin, I've written several now because I keep coming back to them because they are, they're so rich, they're inexhaustible. And I do programs about Chaplin sometimes in theaters uh, in which I will show a movie and, and, and leave the audience peeling the layers because, you know, these movies have not just city lights. These, this, this, this body of work has a lot to say to us, like all great art. Yeah. I love that. Well, Dan, thank you so much for all of this wisdom that you've given to us. It's been really lovely talking to you. Nice to talk to you two uh, as well. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Take thank care you over so there. Much. Bye. So, when this movie comes out, um, it has one premiere that's mediocre. It has another premiere, the major premiere, where Charlie Chaplin has invited Einstein. Well, but the, 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 that first premiere, just to be fair, was like a test screening. They put it up in a theater where people were coming to see a drama. And then all of a sudden, they're like, this is a Charlie Chaplin movie? And they were kind of taking it back. People were leaving in the middle. Charlie Chaplin was like, I've fucking failed. I made a mistake. And then, yes, yes, Einstein comes to the real premiere. Then Einstein comes to the real premiere. The real premiere was actually just as bad in a different way. Oh, why? I mean, people loved it. People loved the movie. But it was at this theater downtown, like in downtown right now. It still exists. Um, and the theater owner had just revamped the theater. And he was oh, like, all yes. excited about it. This guy, H.L. Gumbener. And so in the middle of City Lights, in the middle of Chaplin's gigantic, most important premiere, everything's banging on this. Gumbener stops the movie. And he says over the loudspeakers, before continuing further with this wonderful comedy, we'd like to take five minutes of your time and point out to you the merits of this beautiful this new is theater. crazy. And Chaplin freaks out. Of he, course. He jumps up from his seat and he starts yelling, where is that son of a bitch manager? I will kill him. And the whole audience just starts booing and stomping their feet and getting mad. And then finally, Governor's like, okay, 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 sorry, my bad. He starts the movie back up. But it took a bit for people to get back into it, which is why it meant so much to Chaplin that at the end of the movie, he looked at Einstein and Einstein was crying. I mean, how can you not get emotional at that end scene? And I mean, I love that Einstein cried. And uh, I also feel like Chaplin's the type of guy who would like to tell that story to everybody. Right? Like, did I made he cry? Einstein cry? Yeah, like, I made Einstein Yo, cry. You know what I did? I made Einstein cry. I made Einstein if cry. If I made Einstein cry, I'd put that on my tombstone. Oh, absolutely. What? I'd get buried instead of cremated just to put it on my tombstone. Did anyone not like this movie? Yes, actually. Really? Yeah. Like, a lot of people uh, like approach this with, hey, pretty good for like a retrograde silent picture. Okay. This movie got a little bit of a rounding. When I read the reviews of it, even from Variety, which liked the film, there was this sense of people being unsure whether or not they wanted to say they liked the film. Interesting. Okay. Which maybe I'm projecting, but I do feel like no. as a critic, I can sort of read reviews and be like, they don't mean what they're saying. Even oh, when interesting. They're saying I love that. It. Oh, it's a superpower. It's a superpower. Uh, it's a superpower that maybe people don't always agree with me, but I, I feel like I'm right, says Amy, which is what I'm saying about the reviews of us. Anyway. I wow. Wow. Amy. <laughs> Saying a lot of things that I can't comment on. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so I will say this. This review is from The Nation. It is written by a man named Alexander Bakshi. Okay. The title of his review is Charlie Chaplin Falters. 
Andy says what I might say about a movie like Us. He says the press has overhyped it a lot, probably because they're impressed that this is director doing something against the grain, making a silent film in 1931. He says... Only this can account for the acclamation of City Lights as the crowning achievement of Chaplin's art. The truth is, it is the feeblest of his longer pictures. There are few whimsicalities, while what was intended to be wistfulness has clearly degenerated into something decidedly maudlin. One has feared for some time that this was going to happen, says Alexander Bakshi. There is pathos enough in the character himself not to need any stressing by means of a sentimental plot. Chaplin's growing seriousness, his desire to be more than a mere comedian, they have deceived him into holding sentiment more precious than fun. He has paid dearly for this error of judgment by producing a picture of which less than a quarter does credit to his genius. Alexander Bakshi did like the boxing scene. Okay. But the rest of it, the other three quarters, he was like, eh. Interesting. What do you think it is? Do you think that he wanted to see, like, is this the world of, I want to see a comedy and you gave me too much of a movie that kind of engages me on a different level. I think we're in that world right now where, you know, we have these comedies that are dramas and they're kind of mixing, you know, you're doing a little bit of both. Yeah, I, I, you, when you read that review, you feel a sense of he had a definition of what a Chaplin film was right. and this film was not it. I mean, it's a blessing and a curse maybe to be called a genius, don't you think? I mean, look, I think it is. I think that once you become a genius, then you start to view everything through a lens where you have to kind of live up to that. And, you know... I think the idea of genius is after you're long gone, like you should never put a genius on somebody right away. Like, you know, I think with Jordan Peele, Get Out comes out and people are like, he is a genius. I think that Jordan is an amazing director, but what stress do you have to put on yourself for your next project? You know, you, all these people who kind of have these amazing first outings, what a tremendous, Orson Welles, what a tremendous stress to look at your next project because all of a sudden you're not equating it about what your own idea is. You're equating it about how people view you. And uh, yeah, it's a comment on you as much as it is the film you want to make. Yeah. So that said, is there a Simpsons? Is there a Simpsons, Amy? Yes, ish. Not really. Okay. There are Chaplin Simpson references. There right, are Gold yeah. Rush Simpsons references. There are Modern Times. There's not specifically a City Lights reference. So I pulled this clip from an episode called The Trouble with Trillions because it has an evil millionaire, our beloved Burns. <laughs> oh, you'll find this amusing. The suit Charlie Chaplin was buried in. Yeah. <laughs> and like a silent film, I like that joke because it makes you do the math and say, how the hell did he get that suit? I love it. Um, Amy, I think both of us agree that this movie does belong on the list. There's no doubt there. Number 11. Too high, too low. 11's high. I'm fascinated in the fact that this film made an over 40-point jump, 50-point jump, 60-point jump, really. But I guess if we're talking about, and we talked about this in the past, the idea that your top 10 should be the films that not only are fun to watch, but influence cinema as we know it, I 100% agree that this movie belongs in that grouping. In the top 15, absolutely. I mean, without this film... Without what he's putting forward here, I don't think we create a lot of the films below the top 15. Yeah, I mean, this is our highest silent film. And with that in mind, it's interesting because if you ask me right now which Charlie Chaplin film do I think is the most influential, Mm -hmm. I would probably have guessed Modern Times over this. But Modern Times is like hanging out in like the 60s, 70s, 80s. Right. 
And so I think it's interesting that somehow in that 10-year gap, they picked this one and said, this is the influential one. I think this film is great. But don't you think it's like that thing, we talked about this before, like it's in the Library of Congress. It it gets here, you know, Charlie Chaplin says it's his favorite. It, it People may not even know it. They're just sort of like, oh, right, that's, we just, it's accepted that that is what it is. Right. But it doesn't have a Simpsons. The other two do. So what do you do with that? Well, look, I mean, even our guest today said it's not the best Chaplin film, but it may be the most influential Chaplin film. You know what I'm saying? It's like, um, I would argue that more people know Night at the Opera than Duck Soup, but at the end of the day, people think Duck Soup is better, right? What are you going to do? Mustache versus mustache. <laughs> All right, Paul, should we roll the die? Let's roll the die. Hey, guess what? We ran out of time to tape Rolled, and then we left the studio and we totally forgot. But that doesn't mean that we don't know what the next film is. Next week on Unspooled, we are going to talk about the original Snow White, 1937, the classic, the first real Disney feature film. Very excited about this. And as you know, there are many, 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 many dwarfs. Walt Disney made them all up. They didn't have names before this. We're going to definitely get into that on the show. Uh, so for your listener call-in challenge this week invent a dwarf who is a dwarf that you think should have existed give us a call 747-666-5824 that's 747-666-5824 to invent the dwarf that Walt Disney should have invented all right we'll see you next week bye Unspooled wants to say thank you again to our friends at Fracture, the people who do what we love best, which is take visual moments you love and make them permanent and visible and meaningful and give them the central place in your life that you believe. If you're listening to this show, Unspooled, it's because you also, I'm sure, love images and stories and you know that an image can tell a full story. And sometimes you get to be the director of your own story by taking your photos, hiring them on your phone, on your Instagram. These are the stories of your life. This is your narrative. You're the hero of your own story. Your friends, they are all heroes. We're all heroes here. And Fracture helps you take these photos that you love that tell so much to you. And it lets you turn them into gifts for anybody. You can hang them on your wall. They are beautiful. They are unique. This is a special way to show somebody how much you care about them. So go to FractureMe.com Unspooled, and you can get a special discount on your first Fracture order. Don't forget to pick Unspooled in the one-question survey after checkout. They'll say, how'd you hear about us? Say a podcast, pick Unspooled, and you will get a special discount on your very first order, and you'll be very, very happy. Enjoy. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point, and we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, (laughs) Jazos. Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.